Um, all right, our Bible reading this morning is uh, from Leviticus, starting in chapter 4, um, and going all the way through to Leviticus chapter 6, verse 7. Um, so if you don't have a Bible, there's the blue Bibles there, um, and you're free to take one home if you uh, don't currently have a Bible. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood of the, on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull shall, he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings and the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering but the skin of the bull and all its flesh with its head its legs its entrails and its dung and all the rest of the bull he shall carry outside to the camp to a clean place to the ash heap and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly and they do any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments uh, ought not to be done and they realize their guilt, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering and bring it in front of the tent of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be killed before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall bring some of the blood of the bull into the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar that is in the tent of meeting before the Lord. And the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all its fat he shall take from it and burn it on the altar. Thus shall he do with the bull. As he did with the bull of the sin offering, so shall he do with this. And the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. And he shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it up as he burned the first bull. It is the sin offering for the assembly. When a leader sins, doing unintentionally any one of the things that by the commandments of the Lord his God ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish, and shall lay his hand on the head of the goat and kill it in the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out the rest of its blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering. And all its fat he shall burn on the altar, like the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. So the priest shall make uh, atonement for him for his sin. 
and he shall be forgiven. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish, for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with its finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove, as the fat is removed from the peace offerings, and the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. If he brings a lamb as his offerings for a sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish, and lay his hand on the head of the sin offering, and kill it for a sin offering in the place where they kill the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as as the fat from the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on top of the Lord's food offerings. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed and he shall be forgiven." If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Or if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass or an unclean wild animal, or a carcass of unclean livestock, or a carcass of unclean swarming things, and it is hidden from him, and he has become unclean, and he realizes his guilt... Or if he touches human uncleanness, of whatever sort the uncleanness may be, with which one becomes unclean, and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt. Or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these. When he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. But if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. He shall bring them to the priest, who shall offer the first one for the sin offering. He shall wring its head from its neck, but shall not sever it completely. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, while the rest of the blood shall be drained out of the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. Then he shall offer the second for a burnt offering according to the rule. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven." But if he cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he shall bring as his offering for the sin that he has committed a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall put no oil in it and shall put no frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. And he shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take the handful of it as its memorial portion and burn this on the altar on the Lord's food offerings. It is a sin offering. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed in any one of these things, and he shall be forgiven, and the remainder shall be for the priest, as in the grain offering. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, 
valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering and he shall be forgiven. If anyone sins doing any of these things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquities. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent, for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security, or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor, or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and he has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery, or what he got by oppression, or the deposit that was committed to him, or the lost thing that he found, or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it, and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty." Thank you, Brad. Very well done. I just realized a moment ago that uh, the porridge stain from my children's breakfast on my shorts is still present. (laughs) I thought that I had gotten rid of it, and I figured it would be better for me to point out to you that it's there because those who would have noticed it will have otherwise been distracted. And so now it's there, you know it's there. That said, it actually serves as perhaps a, uh, a fitting picture for this morning and for this passage and the sermon. Because my original opening line, my opening se- statement to you was going to be, one of our greatest challenges as Christians today is taking our sin as seriously as we ought to. The stain of sin, more often than not, we would prefer to ignore. Do you agree? It seems to me that most Christians are far more ready to talk about grace without mentioning, or at best, minimizing sin. Surely one of the reasons for this is because our culture generally ignores the concept of sin. Or at best, they redefine it. Glenn Gurr, writing for Psychology Today, says, Sins are actions that are, at their core, selfish. Religions came on the scene largely as developing a set of mechanisms that discouraged selfish behavior in favor of other-oriented behaviors. Do you hear what he's saying there? He's saying, he's saying that sin is, is purely something about actions 
to do with in our society. A, a sin is an action that harms other people while giving benefit to yourself. So he says, religions came about as a way of trying to regulate that so that people don't just live selfishly. Well, what does God say about sin? For the last few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Leviticus. And in the first three chapters, we saw three different types of offerings. We saw the burnt offering in chapter 1, the grain offering in chapter 2, and the peace offering in chapter 3. The burnt offering was the only one that mentioned atonement. And as we saw, that was the foundation upon which the other offerings could be given. And the common thread for each of these offerings was that they would be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That was the result of each of those offerings. They could all be given for, for different reasons which are outlined, outlined in Scripture. But the outcome was always it was offered as a pleasing aroma. And so what we come to today in these last two offerings of the set of five are the sin offering and the guilt offering. Uh, what sets these two apart is that they are offerings that must be given to atone for sin, as we, ha as we just heard. They are offerings that are given to ensure forgiveness when the, the offerer, when the worshiper recognizes their sin. And as we'll see, God takes sin very seriously. And so should we. The purpose for doing that is not so that we can beat ourselves or others up about it, but so that ultimately it will magnify the Lord's grace. So that we might seriously appreciate the depth, the beauty, the wonder of His grace. As we explore these passages in God's Word from chapter 4, uh, verse 7 through to, uh, sorry, verse 1 through to verse 7 of chapter 6, let's have our uh, Bibles and our hearts open to hear God's Word this morning. We're going to consider four things to do with our sin that God gives us in these passages, uh, in this passage. One, confront your sin. Two, count the cost of your sin. Three, confess your sin. And four, be forgiven of your sin. Let's begin at point one. Confront your sin. One of the best things about living in Darwin is the tropical weather. Would you agree? It's, it's like it's summer all year round. Now, one of the worst things about living in Darwin is the tropical weather. Would you agree? Yeah. Now, especially as we approach the build-up and the wet season, uh, we all know what that means. Mangoes. <laughs> well, that's the good part about it. But the bad part is that little fungus that manages to find its way into every nook and cranny of our homes called mold. It starts to take over. Now, you can live in denial of that if you like. You can, you can pretend that it's not there. But eventually... It will make your house uninhabitable. Sin is like that. We ignore it at our own peril. 
One of the most striking things about this chapter of chapter 4 in Leviticus is the type of sin that is focused on. Sorry, not just the chapter, but the whole passage through to the end of verse 7. Look at verse 2 of chapter 4, which serves as something of an introduction to this whole section and these two offerings. Speak to the people of Israel saying, if anyone sins unintentionally, what sins are we talking about? Unintentional ones. And almost all of the sins mentioned in this whole passage refer to these types of sins, unintentional ones. And now to be clear, we're not, we're not talking about somebody who has a sincere heart, but you know, just makes an innocent mistake. And no, this is about breaking God's law and not realizing that you are doing it or not knowing that that is what you are doing. And just like the laws of our land, it doesn't matter whether you realize that you're breaking the law or not, or whether you are intending to break the law or not. If you break it, you are guilty. Just confirmed. Is that right, Brad? Thank you. Yep. Confirmed from a policeman, official law. Yeah. So I, I was driving in South Australia once, and I went down the wrong road, and I realized that, that I was going down the wrong road, so I, I turned around and came back, and in the course of that little journey, like, like probably less than five minutes, I passed the same speed camera twice, and both times I was wrong about the speed limit. So several weeks later, I received two fines in the mail, one for $700, the other for $200. Was I trying to speed? Definitely not. But did it matter? No. Because I broke the law. And it's important to recognize that this is what sin is. Unlike the definition of modern psychologists today, sin is not primarily about the harm that it brings to other people. It certainly includes that. But primarily, according to the word of God, sin is breaking his laws. And the best concrete picture of this that we have is Judges chapter 20, verse 16, which says, Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. You see, the Hebrew root for the word sin is the same as the, the root for the word miss in this verse. And that captures the essence of sin. It is missing the mark on God's law. It is doing what we are commanded not to do, and it is not doing what we are commanded to do. And the first step that we must take in dealing with sin is confronting it. That's harder than it sounds, brothers and sisters. Again, especially in our culture where we look for the source of our problems, not in ourselves, but in others. Isn't that true? To continue the fungal theme, I learned a great word earlier this year, which comes from the 18th century. Smell fungus. It's one word. Kids, anyone want to take a guess at what smell fungus means? Want to have a guess? Yeah? To smell fungus. I reckon that's a good guess. That, that's a logical guess, Jasper. Well, that's, that's kind of, it, it gives you a sense of what it means. What the word means, it's pretty close to that. 
A smell fungus, a noun, is a person who finds fault in everyone around them. A real fault finder. Somebody who, in a sense, smells fungus in everybody else. My guess is that most of us find it easier to notice the mold in other people's houses than in our own. So it is with our sin. As one seasoned pastor told me recently, when people talk to me, 90% bring problems and only about 10% bring sins. Do you realize that the majority of your pain and struggle comes from your own sin and not others? Now, I'm not suggesting that the sin of others has not hurt or damaged you. I'm not minimizing their sin and its impact in your life. But we will never truly know the freedom of God's grace and forgiveness if we do not confront our own sin. That's why Jesus tells us, as we saw a couple of months ago in Matthew chapter 7, to take the log out of our own eye first. That's why he expressed it as the, the, the problem that you see in the other person is a speck. The problem for you is a log. The vast majority of the issues that you face are to do with your own sin. Even when those sins are unintentional. It is surely the case that the majority of the sins that we commit are unintentional, isn't it? And most of the time it, it comes from being unaware of our own hearts or, or unaware of the commandment itself. Or perhaps by unconsciously twisting God's law or seeking to try and shift it. Or oh, maybe I can read the Bible this way so that I don't have to do that in order to suit our preferences. And so part of what we must do to address that, to confront it, is to know what the Lord's commandments are. Look again at verse 2. Sins unintentionally in any one, of the, any, any one of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them. Do you notice that? Sin is breaking any of the commandments. You can't say, oh, you know, I like commandments 1 to 9, but 10, I'm, I'm just going to go on my own on that one. No, if you break any of them, you are guilty of missing the mark. How well do we know the Lord's commandments, brothers and sisters? How well do we understand his word? How well do we know which commandments from the, the, the Pentateuch and the book of Leviticus apply to us today and which ones don't? What confidence do you have that, that not wearing a shirt made of two different cloths is not sin. Surely another key reason that we tend to think lightly of our sin, that we tend to not take it as seriously as we must, is because we don't even know that we are missing the mark on God's laws. How can you hit a target that you can't see? May we be like the author of the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, and love God's law. Because one of the things that his law does is expose our sin and expose the cost of it and our need for it to be paid. Which brings us to point two, count the cost of your sin. 
If you struggle to count the cost of your sin, as I have for most of my Christian life, then spend some time meditating on the Lord's commandments. That same instruction that we saw in verse 2 is repeated throughout these chapters in verse 13, verse 22, verse 27, and 5, verse 17. In any of the things that the Lord's commandments ought not to be done. Sin is disobeying God's law and it incurs a heavy cost. Both the sin and the guilt offerings that we see in this passage, they are largely the same thing. Right? Leviticus 7.7 7 says the guilt offering is just like the sin offering. There is one law for them. Now, there's still two different things. We'll get into some distinctions later. But it's worth noting for now that both of these off- offerings highlight the cost of our sin. You might remember from some weeks ago, we talked about how the whole sacrificial system was just an assault on the senses. Animals being slaughtered and and blood being splashed and whole bulls being burnt up as an offering to the Lord in the courtyard of the temple. Well, the instructions for the sin offering and the guilt offering in these chapters is no different. It is just as much an assault on the senses and it is meant to serve as a reminder of the cost of sin. Remember, the Israelites were to offer up the burnt offering twice a day at a minimum. And everything we read about in these chapters is on top of that. It is in addition to the necessary burnt offering. And these offerings were given when the offerer recognized, realized that they had sinned. One thing you you may have noticed in your reading of this chapter this week, or perhaps from our reading of it just before, is that each section covers a different uh, person or group of people as you make your way further down the list. You see, I've uh, I've, I've put up a slide for you. The offerers of Leviticus 4, 1, 2, 6, 7. So the first section begins with an anointed priest in verse 3, and what to do if he sins. And then once you've finished all those instructions in verse 13, we have instructions on what to do if it is the whole congregation of Israel who sins. And then after that, in verse 22, there are instructions for what to do if a leader of the people sins. And then in verse 27, from that, what to do if one of the common people sins. As in, if just somebody who's not in these leadership positions. And then after that, from chapter 5 onwards, you have examples of specific sins which uh, require an offering. You recognize that it goes from the greater cost to the lesser cost. It starts with the, the anointed priest and then slowly makes its way down to the common person. And the process for uh, the first two, the common person, the congregation, is basically the same, while the last two is also basically the same. Uh, let's just quickly run through the, the first one. With the anointed priest... Uh, this, this here is most likely referring to the high priest, right? the, the one who is, holds the highest office in the priestly Levitical system. As, so there is, there is no one else who was supposed to be more set apart for doing the Lord's work than him. And that's why he represented the people. And so we see that in verse 3. Because he represents the people, then if he sins, then he brings guilt upon the whole people. 
And that's why he comes first. His sin has the greatest cost. Just picture this whole process. We see from verse 3 that he had to bring uh, the most expensive offering, that is, one of a bull. All right? Hugh pointed out to me a few weeks ago that a bull can feed up to a couple of thousand people. Think of how much it would cost today to cater for over 2,000 people. That is an expensive offering. Unsurprisingly, there are many similarities between this and the burnt offering from chapter 1, such as this part where we see in verse 4 where he is to lay his hands on the head of the bull and kill it. As we saw in chapter 1, this signifies his identification with the animal, which would then take his place in paying the cost of his sin. But what sets the sin offering apart is that uh, unlike any of the three offerings that came before in our previous chapters, some of the blood of the bull is taken into the tent of meeting. You might remember this picture I, sent, uh, I showed of the tent of meeting a few weeks ago. It shows the, the outer courts here with the tent of meeting there on the, on the west side on that far end. Generously taken from the ESV study Bible and relabeled by me. So you see there, that's, that's where the tent of meeting, the tabernacle is. Well, I've got a zoomed in picture for you. In, in the t- tabernacle, the tent of meeting, this uh, a tent had two sections called the holy place and the most holy place. They were separated by a veil or a curtain, as you can see there. And the most holy place was only entered into once a year on the Day of Atonement. We're going to get to that in chapter 16. But the holy place, this, this first section here where you can see the, the lampstand and the table and the offering... That was entered into on this occasion when the sin offering was given for the chief priest or for the people. The, the anointed priest, the, the very one who committed the sin requiring this offering, had to bring blood in from the bull and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. Seven, as we see in Scripture, so often representing fullness, completeness. And then inside the the holy place was another altar, different to the altar of of, uh, sacrifice, called the altar of fragrant incense. And he would smear some blood on the horns of that altar. Now the horns were of one piece with the altar, which we read in Exodus chapter 30, verse 2. And so by doing this, it is representative of the whole thing. By smearing just the horns, it's like he's saying, well, this is cleansing the entire altar We'd see something similar later when the blood is smeared on the ears of Aaron's sons. Now, After that, he would take the rest of the blood back outside and pour it at the base of the altar of burnt offering. Now, The the purpose of this was to symbolize the purification of the holy things of the Lord, which were defiled by the priest's sin. And the atonement of his sin that the blood represented. This was required to atone for the sin of the people. As Hebrews 9.22 tells us, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
That was the purpose of these blood rites. Well, after doing this, the priest would then go on and remove the fat from the bull and also the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver, just like the peace offerings which we saw last week, and he would burn them as an offering. Now remember, for the burnt offering, the whole animal except the skin was burnt up. In all of the other sin offerings, except this one, a little bit is left over for the priests to eat, but not here. When it comes to the the priest, as we see in verses 11 and 12, everything else was taken outside the camp to be burned up. Unlike the other sin offerings where the priests were allowed to eat. And this makes sense because you think about it like this. If the priest was hungry and uh, he was able to eat some of the offering that was given for his sin, well, that gives him some incentive to sin then, doesn't it? You know, I'm, uh, I need some food, so I'm going to commit some sin. Well, somebody bring a bull and we'll be able to eat some. So this, this is the process. And, has, and there are various differences depending on whom the sin offering is for. But only for the high priest and only for the congregation was blood to be brought into the tent of meeting. As you go further down the list, you see that the required offering becomes less and less valuable from a bull to a goat to a lamb to birds and then even to flour. Well, that tells us, doesn't it, that some sins have a more devastating impact than others. And this is still true today. The elders of God's people in his church today will be held to a higher account. As James 3.1 tells us, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. This makes sense. In one sense, the elders represent the church. They are the ones who teach the church, which the church then believes and and. and and goes on to live. And so this is certainly true of the teaching of the elders. But as it was for the high priest, it is also certainly true about their lives. Charles Spurgeon had this to say about it to his students who aspired to be ministers of the gospel. We must remember that we are very much looked at. We are watched by a thousand eagle eyes. Let us so act that we shall never need to care if all heaven and earth and hell swelled the list of spectators. When we say to you, my dear brethren, take care of your life, we mean be careful of even the minutiae of your character. Avoid little debts, unpunctuality, gossiping, nicknaming, petty quarrels, and all other of those little vices which fill the ointment with flies. Church, pray for your elders in this. Pray for the men who aspire to the office of elder, because it is indeed a heavy burden, one that can only be carried by the grace of God. But there is a broader application here, isn't there? The sins of a whole group of people or other leaders of groups can have a devastating impact on a group as a whole. 
This is why churches can and should repent of any corporate sins that they might have committed. And the elders of that church ought to lead the way. Now, this doesn't happen very often, but an example might be when a pastor in a church realizes that they've been far too complacent in a specific area of holiness, or perhaps they've realized that they have been teaching something wrongly from Scripture. That would be a good time for corporate confession and repentance. But also, as Romans 13 teaches us, rulers of nations are authorities that are appointed by God. They represent us. Our very political system is called a representative democracy. We are part of the people of this nation called Australia. I'm not suggesting that you are personally responsible for everyone's sins in your community or in your city or in this nation, or that you're responsible for the sins of our leaders. God's people, after all, they're they're no longer a nation state like they were in ancient Israel. And in the time of Leviticus, his people now are his church. But if we take our sin seriously, then surely that also includes the sins of the people among whom we reside. Perhaps that is a sin of not doing more to advance godly laws in our society. Perhaps it is a sin of not praying for our national leaders as much as Scripture calls us to. Perhaps it is willingly participating in actions that our society deems good that God condemns. Do we recognize and own corporate sins as much as individual ones? Do you own those or are you more, willing to, more ready to say, no, no, that's, I, I'm not part of that, that's not me. As the voice referendum approaches in a month, have we taken our nation's corporate sins into account when considering how to vote? Now, I have no intention of telling you how to vote, and I'm not suggesting that the voice will adequately address our nation's past sins against indigenous people, nor do I think that this is the only consideration. But have we factored that into our consideration? Have we even considered our nation's sins. I hope what you're picking up is that the mold of our sin is in areas of our lives that perhaps we have not looked at in a long time or ever. Perhaps it's in areas of our lives that we're afraid to look at or areas that we would rather keep the cupboard doors closed on. Have we counted the cost? I'm talking here about the cost of sin before God. It's worth noting that even though some sins required a higher cost, all required a sacrifice. Look at the sins listed at the beginning of chapter 5. If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Basically, what this is saying is if you are called as a witness and you don't testify, then that is a sin. Now, this, this was much more serious than skipping jury duty today. It, it could have meant life or death for the accused. Verses 2 and 3 speak of ritual uncleanness, which we're going to get to later in the book. And these are laws given by God, and therefore, to disobey them is to sin against Him. 
verse 4 of chapter 5, talks about rash oaths. And we saw in our series in, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount the seriousness of taking an oath. So you can imagine how serious a sin it was to speak an oath rashly. Chapter 5 goes on to outline what a person must do if they sin in any of these ways. And just as with the burnt offering, provision was made for those who were not able to afford the more expensive offering. Verse 7 says, if you couldn't afford a lamb or a goat, then two birds were sufficient. And if you, in verse 11, if you couldn't afford the two birds, well, then you could bring flour as your sin offering. You notice the specific instruction here that separates it from the grain offering, which we saw last week. is to be no oil or frankincense because it is a sin offering. This isn't something that is rising up as a pleasing aroma. It is not an occasion of celebration or joy, but one of solemnity. But again, as with the burnt offering, the beauty of this is the grace that God shows to the people of Israel. Sin is costly, and yet God made it possible for even those who were at the bottom of the society to still be able to come and bring a sacrifice for the atoning of their sin. Talk about gracious provision. Imagine how the poorest of Israel must have felt to know that even they could bring a sin offering that they would not be cut off from God's people simply because they couldn't afford it. And that is even truer in the new covenant of Christ's blood. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, and the best thing about the good news of Jesus is that he has made a way for you to have your sins forgiven. And he calls you to come as you are. God does not only accept perfect people, because if that was the criteria, then none of us would be accepted. He calls you to come as you are, because he is the one who has provided graciously for you. When you recognize that your sin carries a high price, then you're in the right place. And so what do we do when confronted by the cost of our sin? And that brings us to our third point. We confess it. Kids, can any of you tell me what it means to confess sin? Yeah, there's a bit of mumbling there, but I think I got it. Acknowledge that you've done something wrong. Is that what you said? Yeah, that's right. It means to acknowledge that you've done something wrong, to admit that you have done something wrong, doing something that you were not supposed to do. So God says don't lie. So if you lie, then we, you must confess that. But it also means admitting that you didn't do something that you knew you were supposed to do. One of the prayers from the Australian Anglican prayer book that I prayed many times with my Anglican brothers and sisters while at Ridley went like this. Merciful God, our maker and our judge, 
We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, and in what we have failed to do. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We repent and are sorry for all our sins. Sorry about the formatting. What a great prayer to pray. Useless if you're just doing it out of, you know, right and you don't really care or mean it. But what a great prayer to pray. Bringing sins and guilt offerings for the Israelites, those were acts of confession and repentance. You see, the cost was clear. The offering was a concrete way of confessing their sin. Notice how confession came when they were made aware of their sin. Verses 13 and 22 and 27. When they realized, when, they, when their sin became known, when they met, were made aware of their sin, is when they brought their offering. And perhaps they realized it themselves. Perhaps this might be from learning one of God's commands that they didn't know before. Or perhaps it came from applying one of God's commands in a way that they hadn't considered before. The same is true for us. As we study God's word and consider how it applies to our lives, perhaps from reading it yourself or in conversation with a a fellow brother or sister or in hearing something from a sermon or a prayer or a song at church. Brothers and sisters, when was the last time you discovered something in God's word that went against what you had previously thought and you realized that you were in sin and you confessed it and repented of it? Before the Lord. It could also be that this phrase is referring to when a person receives the consequences of their sin. Now, this is certainly one way that God gets our attention. Or perhaps it was pointed out to them. Maybe the person that they sinned against pointed it out. The one against whom they had done something wrong actually said, Hey, do you realize, do you recognize this? Or perhaps it was from a godly friend who observed their lives and in love pointed out their sin to them. Well, this is part of the life of the church too. This continues today. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. What matters, brothers and sisters, is that when we become aware of sin, whatever the means of discovering it, however it is that the Holy Spirit brings it to mind, brings it to your heart and helps you to see it, the right response always is one of confession and repentance. The Christian life is one of ongoing, seeking sin, confessing, and repenting of it. John Owen puts it like this, when sin lets us alone, we may let sin alone. But sin is never less quiet than when it seems most quiet. Its waters are deepest when they are still. So we need to vigorously root out sin at all times and in all conditions, even where we least suspect it even where we least suspect it. Do we take that view? 
Or are we happy to leave areas of sin in our lives in the unintentional category? Do we search and destroy sin? Or do we let sleeping sin lie? Do we, like so many unstable societies, form under-the-table arrangements with our sin so that we can turn a blind eye to them? Brothers and sisters, that is not the way of the one who loves God. We search our hearts for sin. And when we find it, we confess and repent. As a matter of fact, God makes it clear that there is a big difference between the one who comes in confession and the one who rejects him. Numbers 15.30 speaks of the person who sins with a high hand, which means in defiance. They're, they're doing it, shaking their fist at God, whether literally or figuratively. That person is cut off from their people. Such a person does not show evidence of one who loves God. That is the difference. If you're the kind of person who worries about sin that you're committing in your life, which you can't see, perhaps you're worried if God really has forgiven you, worried if you really have done enough or confessed enough or or done all of that, then I hope you take heart from this passage. Do you notice how the offering is is brought to God when the person, the sinner, recognizes it? Not when they commit it because they didn't realize they were committing it. When did God recognize that they'd sinned? When they committed it. He knew from that moment. And yet, when they came to realize, he still accepts their offering. God doesn't cut off his people as soon as they commit an unintentional sin, even when they don't realize they are sinning. No. He provides a way for their sin to be atoned for and for them to be forgiven. For all who do not sin, shaking their fist at God, but instead come humbly before him and bring their confession and repentance. He is ready and waiting to forgive. That brings us to our fourth and final point. Be forgiven of your sin. Sometimes people don't like the idea of God needing blood in order to forgive. You know, they say, why, why can't God just wave his hand and forgive people of their sin? It, you know, if he's God, why does it have to be like that? Now, one of the reasons we think this way, I think, is because more often than not, when we talk about forgiveness, we're not often talking about cost, right? When we teach our kids to say sorry, when they've said something unkind or or perhaps thrown a ball at their sibling's head, we're not talking about the cost of their sin in that interaction. And we often, we don't get them to pay the cost by saying, all right, you stand there, now I'm going to throw a ball at your head and then it'll be even. No, we don't do that. One of the reasons I think we can have this mentality that forgiveness shouldn't cost anything, that it should be fine, is because we often don't see the cost of sin. 
But in forgiveness, there is always a cost. Somebody always pays. And to illustrate this, uh, US President Joe Biden made headlines for a while uh, in the last year or so when he tried to bring to life a plan to provide up to $20,000 of debt relief for millions of American university students. Debt forgiveness. It was actually called debt forgiveness. I use the example because it's rare for an economic policy to use the word forgiveness. But it helps us understand that forgiveness always has a cost. Now, the program got shut down by the Supreme Court, but the cost of forgiving all of those student debts was going to be $300 billion. Forgiveness, there is always a cost to it, and somebody has to pay. We see that in our passage Look at verse 20. Thus shall he do with the bull. As he did with the bull of the sin offering, so shall he do with this. And the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. The priest shall make atonement. And we see that same line after each of the offerings that are given from 4.1 to 6.7. Sin and guilt offerings, they were, uh, the, the offering would make atonement for the offerer, and they would be forgiven. The only time we don't see this is in the instructions for the high priest. It's likely because he himself was the one who sinned and he would not be offering the, the offering for the atonement of sin. But it seems safe to assume that the atonement that was applied to, to all those who brought their offering did to him as well. Interestingly, chapter 4 is actually the first time that the word forgiveness is used in the book of Leviticus. Actually, it's used multiple times in this whole passage that we're looking at this morning, and it's only used one other time outside of this passage. Moses is intentionally making a point here about what the sin and guilt offerings achieve. Every time forgiveness is offered... It is because the atonement for sin has been given. If you look at every example of this phrase being used in this passage, you'll see that the offering would give atonement and forgiveness would be received by the offerer. That's because the two of these go together. Atonement pays the cost of sin. It's the blood that atones, as Leviticus 17.11 tells us. And the result is forgiveness. A penalty is paid for their sin, and they receive forgiveness. That imagery is even more clearly spelled out when the offering is described as compensation. You see that in verses 6 and 7 and 15, and verse 6 of chapter 6. Compensation. What's compensation? It's what you pay when you have done wrong to somebody. It's what you owe them. If a workplace doesn't keep its employees safe, it must pay compensation, also known in our great nation as compo. And this is also why the Bible uses the imagery of debt. As Jesus teaches his followers to pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts. It is what is owed to God. 
The sin and the guilt offering were there to compensate for the debt of the worshippers' sin. And the key thing that set apart the guilt offering was that this idea extended to paying back on top of the guilt offering, either to the Lord, as we see in verse 16 of chapter 5, or from the person that they stole from, as in verse 5 of chapter 6. So if, if you have robbed from somebody, if you have taken or cheated somebody out of something, as verse 5 says, you need to return what you have taken and then add a fifth on top of that. Well, that again is true for us. It may be difficult to figure out what that looks like in some circumstance, but our desire as Christians should always be to cover any debt that we owe to others that we have sinned against. Why? Because our debt has been paid. Because our sin has been atoned for. Because our sin is forgiven. As we saw last week, the blood of bulls and goats could not ultimately compensate for the sin of humanity. The sacrificial system was a shadow of the reality that it anticipated. The book of Hebrews repeatedly shows us the reality to which this system pointed. The sacrificial system would eventually give way to the perfect sacrifice. The sin offering that could actually atone once for all and offer forgiveness. Listen to Hebrews 13 verse 11 to 12 which clearly shows how even the burning up of the animal outside the camp in chapter 4 pointed to Jesus' sacrificial death. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. The sin offering and the peace offering, sorry, and the guilt offering would find their fulfillment in the perfect offering. In the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he has opened the way for all of us, for all who come to him in repentance and trusting in his sacrifice to have our sin atoned for and for us to be forgiven. If you've not confessed your sin and turned away from it and trusted in Christ, let me urge you to do so today. Confront it, count its cost, Confess it and know Christ's forgiveness. The offering required for the atonement of our sin was nothing less than the death of God's own Son. That should cause us to recognize the seriousness of our sin and to take it seriously in our lives. but it should also magnify to us how great our God's love is that our Father should give his only Son and his only Son would be so 
willing to lay down his life for us. Taking sin seriously when surrendered to Christ ultimately means knowing forgiveness seriously. And so we can sing with joy, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my sin is ever before me. And I recognize that far more than I would like, I would rather live with sin in the unintentional category and not be made aware of it. Rather than doing the hard work of seeking it out in my heart and rooting it out, I would prefer to just lean on your grace. But God, I know that that grieves you. I know that such a response does not properly take into account how significant the cost of our sin really is. We pray, Father, that just as Leviticus reminds us, we would recognize the heavy cost of sin, how significant it is, how serious it is. We pray that as a result, we would treasure and far more deeply and seriously appreciate the wonder, the greatness of your love and your grace shown to us in Jesus. May that become increasingly evident to us more and more in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.